The concept of a frontier is an interesting one. It's the extreme limit of a space beyond which lies wilderness and, by extension, wildness. So, when we talk about Australia's frontier wars, we're talking about pushing into Aboriginal land and being met with resistance. It's these encounters that filmmaker Rachel Perkins has spent the last five years delving into for her new docuseries, The Australia Wars. In it, she seeks to understand why the truth of Australia's colonisation was, until recently, largely ignored in favour of a more passive and meek narrative of settlement. Rachel spoke with a ways Jerome Commissari about the Australia Wars and why she wanted to tell this story. I feel like this is one of the great untold narratives of the of our nation. I mean, there has been documentaries made previously on this subject, but I felt like it hasn't really been embraced as a as a foundational narrative for the modern Australian state. So it felt very purposeful to to make this. And I was reluctant because I knew the sort of records that I'd have to spend my life with for the next, you know, four or five years as it turned out. Yet the driving force of the importance of this story was, you know, a big motivating factor. Like I would rather do this than anything else, really. So, yeah, to just, you know, to to bring this story back into the country's narrative. And of course, you can't change things the way they happen, but it certainly gives people the ability to understand why we want to change things now. Did you find things, say, in archives or oral histories that you were just shocked to hear, even you, someone who's relatively familiar with this kind of stuff? I mean, the injustice of things, I think, and the the treatment of people, the inhumanity um, was deeply upsetting. And, you know, you you get to a point where you're just like, I can't read this anymore. But it is essential to to read it and it is essential, I think, to feel something, to, to f- you know, to, to shed tears. It demands it. You know, if that's all we give it, then... <laughs> at a minimum, and I think out of all the countries I've been to, we're the only country that hasn't come to terms with its history. Let's talk a bit about the first episode. So it may seem a bit self-evident, but why is the first instalment of the series based largely in the area that we now call Sydney? It is a return to some of the history that I've already presented in film in the first Australians we presented parts of this history, but I think you have to lay the foundations of the British occupation and why the nature of that occupation set us on a course for conflict. Um, You know, obviously Aboriginal people had relations with Macassans for hundreds of years predating British arrival, but of course the Macassans didn't claim (laughs) our land. (laughs) However, when the British came, they did claim the continent, uh, well, half of the continent initially, knowing there were people here and they didn't give our people property rights. So it meant that they were setting us on a collision for conflict and they didn't uh, agree to have any treaty instruments to negotiate access to land. So 
Instead, they just made us British subjects. So that meant two things. One, if they didn't give us property rights, then we were going to we were going to have a fight about whose country it was and that was, you know, set to occur because of their decision. And two, by making us British subjects, they entered into this mental gymnastics where we were British subjects so they therefore couldn't declare war on us. So I think that aspect that they were unable to declare war on us is part of the reason that we have this myth that there was a peaceful settlement you have to remember, so these guys have been colonising most of the world for hundreds of years before they get to Australia, right? So it's a well-oiled machine, <laughs> you know, of how to deal with said natives in whichever territory they land in, you know. So they've got, you know, they've got the, they come with all of the axes and they come with the, you know, the presents and the gifts and the alcohol and all of these things and they try and ingratiate themselves and make friends so that they can get the local intelligence about food and so that they can, you know, uh, create leaders who will then be messengers. Like it's, it's, it's out of the colonial playbook. Um, and I think that's why Australians don't see it necessarily as an invasion per se because, you know, people don't arrive in boats although Captain Cook arrived in a boat shooting people. But, you know, Philip arrives in friendship. You know, they're not like getting out the cannons and just firing at everybody because, as Henry Reynolds, the historian, says, once any invader, you know, arrives, they want to make peace pretty quickly because they can't sustain an ongoing war. They want to make peace. So I think that's because of the sort of soft diplomacy that um, Philip, used, I think that's why people don't necessarily see it as what it was, which was setting up an occupation of, you know, the British Empire to expand and take territory. Well, he was a bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Look, it's, you know, it, it's, he was an intelligent, accomplished, potentially charming man, very enlightened. He had a purpose which he needed to fulfil, which was, you know, to uh, sustain this colony. The best way to do that when he's outnumbered in foreign territory is to make friends with the local, you know. He is a naval commander. He he will bring force if required and ultimately that's what he does when the colony is threatened. And that's what you see them all do. You know, they all try and be friends, they all try and be nice and then when Aboriginal people resist their expansion or Aboriginal people threat the colony, then they will use military force and they're prepared to use it. I want to move on to the last episode. This one really strikes a chord in me because I just find the concept of native police to be distressing. Could could you describe what native police are, what the native police corps is? Well, again, it's something out of the colonists' playbook. So the British use often um, military forces or what they call police forces of the First Nations against... First Nations. <laughs> so what they do is they use the they they bring the skills. So our people bring skills, tracking ability, ability to survive off the country, and knowledge of country, which then um, neutralizes the advantage Aboriginal warriors have. So it's a deliberate uh, deliberate tactic. And so what they did here in Australia, they um, used Aboriginal men. Uh, they would uh, 
give them horses and uniforms and they started in Victoria in the uh, late uh, 1830s and then they took it up in New South Wales when they were on the New South Wales-Queensland border when they were fighting the Gamilaroi and then when Queensland became a state, uh, sorry, a separate colony, they instituted their own force but they made it, expanded it and it ran for 50 years, that 50 years. It was a colonial force um, that's sole purpose was to put down Aboriginal resistance. And something that a lot of people don't know about that you might actually like to explain is how they would take people from, you know, you take a bunch of Wiradjuri people and you bring them up to Queensland or something like that. So they don't necessarily speak the language of the area or anything. They're just as isolated as they're isolated too, you know, so it's a double kind of a double thing there. Well, that's right. So um, it was a deliberate tactic. They, they knew that Aboriginal people wouldn't fight their own people or shoot their own people. So they bought people from a long, as far away as possible. So uh, in Tasmania, for example, they bought Aboriginal guides from Sydney to track Aboriginal Tasmanians. In Victoria, they bought people from New South Wales. And in Queensland, Again, they bought people from New South Wales or other areas in Queensland with deliberate strategy um, so that Aboriginal people, these men, were isolated, strangers in this country, often scared because they're in other people's country, they could be killed. And often they recruited people. There is evidence that they recruited them at the butt end of a rifle or they often uh, said to Aboriginal people who were in jail, we'll let you out if you become a native policeman. And the evidence suggests that oftentimes there were so many Aboriginal men deserting that they didn't have enough Aboriginal policemen to go and find the deserters. And Aboriginal policemen knew that if they deserted and they were found, they would be shot. Mm. My understanding is a large desire while making this was to just get these, these First Nations conflicts acknowledged. And you want them acknowledged by the War Memorial, is that right, Rachel? Yeah, and look, that's just a personal view, right? So I know other Aboriginal people think that they don't want any part of that institution because they feel like it's a, you know, it's a part of the colonial construct. Um, And there's a variety of views, right? So it's just my personal view that it should be there because that is the nation's monument to war, to Australians' experience of war. And I have a deep respect for the War Memorial at the same time because it acknowledges the sacrifice of Australians who give their lives and who serve their country and that is that cannot be underestimated, you know, and many of our people have served and continue to do so. So I don't want to disrespect that aspect of the War Memorial but I do feel that it should include the war that was fought on this soil on our own country and that the war that was fought to establish this contemporary country. And and I actually do resent the fact that it suggested that we should be having that put in the Australian Museum, like alongside, what, the zoological collections? You know, I just, it's, 
it's an omission. And they do say that they acknowledge that frontier conflict existed and they acknowledge it in the way that it affected Aboriginal servicemen and women who, you know, later chose to serve in the army. So they do say, they don't deny it. They just say it should be predominantly elsewhere. And that's particularly hard to swallow when they're about to, well, they're undertaking a half a billion dollar renovation to house, you know, um, military weapons of war. In watching this, Rachel, there's a lot of kind of hard-hitting interviews. There's a lot of beautiful shots of country, moody shots of country. But there's also a lot of reenactments. They're often brutal, usually brutal, but they're something, they bring a certain viewing quality that is really tantalising. Why did you choose to do that this way? Well, with drama, sometimes you can make things come alive that you can't otherwise do, you know, with archival pictures, you know, or um, just plain interviews. And so it drama can illuminate a human interaction. Um, it can give something an emotion to that um, puts people in the shoes of that person. They can see it through their eyes in a dramatised way. So you can understand... Uh, a mother running towards her child trying to grab her, you know, and save her from being shot. Or you can see Governor Phillips' shock at being speared. <laughs> I, uh, loved, um, I loved that one. <laughs> he yeah, just did, he ben, didn't know what was going to happen until it was straight in his chest or shoulder, I yeah, should say. Yeah, <laughs> no, he didn't. And um, it is incredible that he didn't respond. But, yeah, so, I mean, look, to be honest, I find reenactments in documentaries a little hokey. You know, sometimes they're a little, oh, you just, they look a bit stupid. And I'm hoping that ours don't. I made this show always for an Indigenous audience, first and foremost. But I really did make this for all Australians to watch. And not all Australians are going to watch it. But I made it, I really wanted to make it accessible and to welcome people into this story, knowing that it's going to be tough, but I didn't want to weaponize it. You know, I want it to be illuminating for people that they can embrace this difficult history. And so I hope that I've achieved that because it is for everyone, you know, to watch and I don't know, it's a tough history. So I've tried to make it, you know, something that people can engage with, even though, yeah, it might scare people off. It's it's not meant to. Mm. And now you're out the other side. Was all the trauma and heartache worth it? Well, we'll see. I don't know. It's, um, you know, it, I've, I've got to see how people respond to it. And it's an open question. You never know. You know, you never know how, how a program's going to go, do you? You never know what how it's going to be received. But I really do, my intention is to bring it to the Australian public at a time when I think that our country is on the cusp of, you know, change. And I hope that it stimulates audiences to understand the perspective of our people, what we went through, why we want the things that we do, why we want change why we believe that a Makarata treaty-making is important, why we think truth-telling is important. Hopefully people, because they've been denied this history at school, 
by seeing something like this, we'll be able to understand, okay, this is why we need to set things right in this country. I mean, that sounds like a really lofty ambition um, and maybe it is, but I do want this documentary to not just give people their history, but then get them to engage and say, okay, now what do we do with this? Now we know this, what do we do? Director Rachel Perkins there. She was speaking with a Ways Jerome Commissari about her new docu-series, The Australia Wars, which is on NITV now. You can watch it on Wednesday nights or catch up with SBS On Demand.